Let me invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for the next bit of our time together. Uh, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. And we've provided some that should be within arm's reach of you. They're little black hardback copies of the Bible. And the, uh, the, the section we're going to be looking at for the next few minutes is on 898, page 898, if you're using that black uh, hard copy Bible that we've provided. Uh, I wonder, what would you change about your life if you could? What would be on your list? What do you think will make you happier? Maybe you're kind of like me and you tend to live in the past. I'm super nostalgic. If you've known me for any amount of time, you know that I am. And you know that I tend to think that it would be better, I'd be happier if I had what I used to have. Uh, maybe you're more uh, forward thinking, especially you young whippersnappers out there. Uh, I used to be you. I remember you used to think that you know, if I could just fill in the blank, if I could just lock in who I'd marry, then everything else would fall into place. If I could just finish grad school, if I could just finish grad school again, if I could just finish grad school again, if I could just get a job that would pay me something on the other side of graduate school, if I could just be halfway decent at the job I have now, if I could just fill in the blank, I've lived like that. Or maybe you're just so up to your eyeballs sick of what you're dealing with right now. You'd rather be anywhere but where you are. And think happiness would mean just being elsewhere, unstuck, somewhere different. I don't know if you look to the past. I don't know if you look to the future. I don't know if you look to where anywhere else but where you are. But if you're looking in any one of those directions, if any of this is resonating with you, you should know that you are so normal. That is basic human posture. And that all of us are just dead wrong to feel that way. The key to feeling happiness, the key to contentment is not some change that we might make from where we are now, but living with God right where we already are. That's the radical message of 1 Corinthians 7. This is a chapter that wants to take our focus off the circumstances we're stuck with and would rather change, off the possibilities we're hoping for but can't be sure of, and put our focus instead on what God has already given us in the lives we're already living now. Not just what he's given us, but how he's available to us precisely through the life that he's given us now. That's the big idea of 1 Corinthians 7. And it's a long chapter. And it's full of lots of practical details at the beginning and at the end. And then right in the middle of the chapter, some wonderful meaty theology about who God is and what it means to live in his world that functions like a hinge where the stuff that comes before is really applying what Paul says in that middle section and the stuff that comes after just applying what Paul says in that middle section. So here's what we're going to do. Think about this as part number one of kind of a two-part sermon. Part number one will be today. Part number two will be next week. And in both situations, both this, this week and next week, we're going to be working out the theology that comes in verses 17 to 24 of, of 1 Corinthians 7. It's at that section where Paul says, the key is to remain right where you are now with God 
And on both ends of it, he shows us how. He shows us what that looks like in the specific details of the lives that we're living. I, I want to begin by reading all the verses 1 to 24 before we come back and spend most of our time together this morning in verses 1 to 16. I, I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, and, and read through verse 24. Friends, this is God's word to us. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, well, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called 
is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. That last sentence, basically repeated three times in that last paragraph. There's your main point for the whole chapter. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I wonder if you notice back up in verse 7 that Paul describes each person's situation there not just as a calling, that's the word he uses in 17 to 24, but as a gift. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. What I want to do this week and next week is simply unwrap the gifts that, call, that Paul labels here, the gifts that, that you may be enjoying in your life to show what it would mean to, to enjoy that gift as something from God, with God, who come, whose goodness comes to you through it. This morning, we're just going to focus on, especially on the first 16 verses of this chapter. Uh, and I want to just un, uh, unpack together the first three gifts on Paul's list. Those gifts are the gift of sex, the gift of singleness, and the gift of marriage. There's your three points for this morning. Let's unpack the gift of sex, the gift of singleness, and the gift of marriage. First, the gift of sex. Chapter uh, the chapter opens right in the first verse with a brand new section for this letter. It's a section where he's going to be taking up things they've asked him about in a letter they wrote to him. He's just going to cover those one by one by one. There's no logical connection really between the, the rest of the topics that come in the letter. It's just him answering the questions that have been raised. So apparently they've sent him a letter to ask about a position some of the people in the church hold when it comes to sex. Verse one has that position. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what they were saying. I think it's probably a really early version of a perspective that's come up over and over again through the history of the church in one form or another. The, the idea is that it would be better for your spiritual health, better for your relationship with God to say no to some of the pleasures of life, including sex. Sometimes there's been a special association with, with sex on this front, as if sex itself can be somehow tainting or defiling for a person standing before God. This seems to just be a very early idea, again, of a, of a, a, a version of an idea that's cropped up over and over through the history of the church. And Paul says, like, no, absolutely not. You could not be more wrong. Not only does he say it's okay to have sex in marriage, he says you ought to have sex in marriage. Did you notice what he said? How could you not? Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's as straightforward as it can be. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And then as if the point hasn't come through, the most stark way of putting it all, verse four, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his body, but the wife does. Now, I'm guessing that's the first thing that jumped out at you in these verses. Paul's using language of rights and authority. And on a quick read, I don't know what your first gut reaction was on a first pass over these verses, but my guess is it's kind of a shrinking back. 
kind of a, almost an, an ew. That doesn't sound right. That, that sounds like exploitation to me. One spouse having a right to make another spouse do whatever they want. But if that's the way you react to those verses, look closer with me. Two things you need to notice about what Paul is saying here. Because he's saying exactly the opposite of what it might have seemed like he was saying when you first heard it. The first thing to notice about this text is that Paul is giving an equal standing to the husband and the wife in a marriage when it comes to sex. That was a radical move in his time, an unprecedented move for the ancient Roman world. They're, they're reading, reading what Paul would have said, they would have expected the first part of verse four. This would have been sounding like what they already believed. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. They'd be like, yep, that makes sense. That's how we've always thought, but not so fast. Paul says, likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is an equal playing field he's laying out. And in marriage, you are not your own, but belong to your spouse, whether you're a husband or a wife. That's what he's saying. And then the other thing to notice about what Paul's saying here is that when he's talking about rights and authority, he's not talking to the husband about the husband's authority over his wife. And he's not talking to the wife about her authority over her husband. He's not saying, their body's yours, so stand up for your rights and get what you want. He's telling them, each of them, to give their spouse what is their right. He's telling them to defer to one another. Or as he puts it in verse 5, don't deprive one another. Not take what you want, it's yours anyway. Stand up for your rights, but... But no, serve your spouse with your body. He's not laying down rights that you can claim for yourself under the law. He's laying down responsibilities to lean into as a gift from God in your marriage for your good. So let me make it real clear. Let me get really practical for a second and make it really clear, as clear as I can make it, what this does not mean for you and what this does mean for you if you're married. What this does not mean for you. There, there is no cover here for an abusive situation where one spouse demands control over the body of the other spouse. There is no command here for you to put up with anything that your spouse asks for simply because your spouse demands it. That is not the situation that Paul has in mind. That's not what he's speaking into. He's speaking into what you might call a typical, even a healthy marriage where even in that context, sex can still be a source of tension and where selfishness can so quickly flare up. That's what he's talking about. So now let me tell you what he does mean for you if you're married. If God's given you the gift of marriage under those normal circumstances that I'm talking about, he has also given you the gift of sex. It isn't a right for you to claim but it is absolutely a gift for you to enjoy and a gift for you to share with your spouse. Let me just put it even more bluntly. If you're married, all things being equal, if you're married, it'd probably be better if you were having more sex. Now, let me, let me tell you what Paul is saying here because it hints at what to expect out of a healthy, normal marriage. He shows us what to do with what you should expect in a healthy, normal marriage. And he shows us what's at stake. He hints at what to expect. He shows us what to do. 
He shows us what's at stake. Let me show you. First, he's hinting at what you should expect in a normal and healthy Christian marriage. And that's this. In my experience, people tend to be surprised that sex isn't the easy part of married life. People expect when they get married that there's going to be conflict they'll have to work through. That they'll have to get used to sharing space and get used to sharing calendars and get used to sharing bank accounts. All the rest. But surely, often they think... Sex is something that's easy to share, right? I mean, actually, it's something that's so easy to share and so wonderful that it'll help you absorb all the other possible conflicts in marriage. And, and yeah, in, in times it can have that effect and it is meant for that purpose. And it's a great gift from God. But it's complicated. For every couple I've ever talked to, it's, it's just complicated. And it's different for every couple, but one way or another, every couple is going to have times or ways where they're just not on the same page about sex. Uh, when or, or how often or under what circumstances or a whole host of other things that you can be different about. And I think what Paul is showing us here, just for the way he's talking to both sides of a marriage, is that that kind of gap is normal. And he wants to push each spouse to move toward the other. He's assuming his whole section here only makes sense if he expects there's going to be a gap there of one sort or another. And his desire is to push each spouse toward the other. So he hints at what to expect. And then, then he shows you what to do. Basically move toward one another. Our tendency in our sin is to stake out our ground and to defend it, you know, to claim what we think is our right, our right and to insist on it either out loud or, or maybe much more commonly in our own hearts. To focus on what we're getting or not getting out of the relationship. That's why Paul right here, that's why he goes right at each spouse about what they should give to the other, not what they should demand from the other. Paul knows. He knows the heart. He's a surgeon. He's going right at what matters. <laughs> Let me say this. Paul, is, he's not here trying to lay down a one-size-fits-all plan for your sex life. What he's telling you is to prioritize sex in your marriage, to move toward your spouse, to, to make, let me put it this way, to make it a shared goal in your marriage to build this part of your life together. I, I wonder if you're married, what would that mean for you? It might mean doing the hard work to rebuild trust that's been broken by sexual sin. If that's where you are in your marriage, you're in good company. You're surrounded right now in this very room by friends who have walked that same road or are walking that road right now. And in other words, by friends who know it is not easy to walk that road. That rebuilding trust is difficult and painful and sometimes takes a long time. But what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7, what that means for you, if that's where you are, is that it is actually worth the work. That, that Christ, your Savior, wants you to do that work. And if he wants you to do that work, he is with you in that work. He is an ally for you in that work. He is your pledge and promise that that work will bear fruit if you're willing. It's, it's worth starting that work today if that's where you are. And we're here to help you if you want to help. 
We'd love to talk about that. I would love to talk to you about that, even this morning. And building a better sex life for your marriage might mean, it might mean working to heal from trauma in your past. The effects of trauma, especially sexual abuse, are so powerful. They are so mysterious. They are so difficult to live with. And it'll take patience and effort and grace and lots of wise counsel. What I want you to know is as you hear Paul shoot straight on the role of sex and the importance of having sex in a marriage is that that should not mean that you just shut down whatever it is you're experiencing based on the trauma of your past and move on. You may need careful attention from trained people who can help you overcome the effects that you can't control. Obeying this text, leaning into it, might mean just starting that work today and trusting that the Lord will one day give you what you need to begin having sex again. Building a better sex life in your marriage may just mean lots of conversation with your spouse about what's going on, how it's going, what's not going well. I mean, in other, in other words, it may mean a lot of conversations that nobody really wants to have. If we're honest, those are not fun. Nobody enjoys it. It seems like it ought not to be needed. It seems like it kills the romance. It seems like just an epic fail if you're having to talk about it. But that's not what it is. I mean, that, that, it, good conversation is how you obey Paul and move toward one another in a healthy marriage. It's how you learn to understand one another with grace and patience. It's how you try to love the spouse that God has given you as they are, right where they are. And, and the reality is that, that sex is, is just a part of life. It's embedded in life, which is to say it's always fluid. It's always changing because we're always changing. Life just doesn't stay the same. That means sex is going to be affected by illness, sometimes chronic illness that you may live with the rest of your life. It will be affected by children in all sorts of wonderful and challenging ways. It will be affected by the season of life that you're in. It will be affected by your own aging. It will be affected by all kinds of things that will have to be talked about. You'll have to adapt to one another and good conversation to, a good conversation to have based on what Paul is saying here is an assessment of where you are right now in your life and in this part of your marriage to talk together about what would it look like to grow from here? What can we do to move toward one another? Where can we strengthen our sex life in marriage? And the reason that conversation is worth having is not just that it's a good gift that you ought to enjoy, that God gave you and wants you to enjoy, but that there is much at stake See, sex is never neutral in a marriage. It'll always be working for you, drawing you to one another, or it'll be working against you, threatening to drive a wedge in your marriage that'll hold back your joy in each other and your effectiveness as a team in the work God's given you to do. I think that's what Paul has in mind in verse five. Did you notice in verse five, he talks about Satan. He says, yeah, you may, there may be a time where you'd want to say, for an agree, agree together, we're not going to have sex for a time so that we can devote ourselves to prayer. Kind of like fasting from food. That might be necessary, might be a good thing to do. 
he says. But, but then, then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think Paul is pointing at something here that's, that's, that's a real threat to all of us all the time. Satan wants to get at you through your sex life. He wants to use sex to bring you down. And he knows how to do it. He sees how good this gift is. He hates good gifts. And so he works hard to destroy those gifts. And if possible, your marriage and your life right along with it. I heard a pastor say that if you're not married yet, Satan wants to get at you through sex. He wants you having sex outside of marriage and thinking it'll be good for you because he knows it won't be. That was chapter six. If you are married, Satan wants to get at you through sex. He wants you not having it. He wants you divided over it. He wants you distracted from it. He wants you feeling like ultimately it's just not worth the work. Paul is telling us in marriage to see ourselves as in this together against Satan. You are part of each other's defense system against the damage that he wants to do to you and through you. I know there's a lot here. And I know that in a room this size with this many people in it, there's a lot of different ways for what's here to land. I want to sum up this section before we move on by just simply connecting it back to the central section of this, of this chapter. To remember that Satan's great original lie is that you'd be happier if you had something God hasn't given you yet. He wants you to think that your good life is outside of God's gifts, not inside. And he will use sex to convince you that that's true. That my happiness will depend on a different sex life than the one I have. One that others have, maybe. One I've seen online. One I've imagined for myself. That's a lie. It is the oldest lie in the book and, and devastation comes to those who believe it. So don't believe it. Remain where you are with God. Happiness exists in him, only in him, but it's there in him and with him. You can enjoy this good gift that he's given you in your marriage. You can cultivate it together from where you are now, wherever that might be. That's the gift of sex, and it's a wonderful gift worth protecting. Now, in verse 6, Paul transitions to another gift, and the way he does it is just stunning to me. He goes from the gift of sex to the gift of singleness. He's just spent the last half chapter in chapter 6 laying out a view of sex that was just revolutionary in his time. He's talking about it as something that's way more than just a bodily appetite. That's how the Romans saw it, just like eating or sleeping or whatever. You just do it. And he's saying, no, it's, it's way more powerful and precious and beautiful than that. It's meant to join two people in all of life. It's something so precious, it can't be neglected in marriage. If you're married, you need to make your sex life an essential part of your marriage. That's what he's saying. It's just wonderful. And now he's saying it's absolutely something you can live without. <laughs> it's absolutely something you don't have to have. In fact, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. He's single. 
by the way. That's what he means. Look at verse 8. It is good to remain single as I am. Isn't that striking? He moves from talking about how essential sex is in marriage to how wonderful it is to be single. Listen to him. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's right on the verge of saying it would be better if you were single, if you're married now. He has to catch himself from that and have to say, you know what? No, it's a gift either way. God has given gifts to everyone, each one, one, to, one to this person, another to that person. It's a gift, whatever you are. But man, my gift is good. That's what he's saying. We're going to say a lot more about this perspective next week. It's, it's basically Paul's point for the second half of this chapter. So I'm going to save some time this morning and save some meat on the bone for next week by not saying much about singleness here from the first half of chapter 7. I do just want to say this. We need to notice already and to prime the pump for next week that, that Paul is saying singleness is a gift just like marriage is a gift. Uh, to use his language from a few verses later, he, he sees singleness as a calling for as long as you have it. Singleness for Paul is not defined by what it's not. Singleness doesn't mean not married for him, but by what it is, a positive good, something, something you should be, should be thankful for something you should use well. It's not a deficit to overcome, but an opportunity to be leveraged for good as you live a life that God has called you to. That's his point. Singleness is a gift. Now, some of you are single here this morning and you know exactly what Paul is talking about. You, you feel it as a gift and you're using it well already to honor him and to serve him. Praise God for that. But I know some of you are single and don't want to be. Some of you are single and long to be married. And you know it's not completely in your control. And that can make it so frustrating, so painful and disorienting, especially as friends that you have who, who are single begin to get married and, and you haven't yet. And if that's you, let me say, nothing Paul's saying here means you can't long to be married or ask the Lord to give you a spouse or ask your friends to pray that right alongside you. Marriage is a good gift and it's worth praying for if you want it. But in the meantime, it's crucial for you to know and I think a real comfort for you to know that your situation right now is a gift from God. It's not an accident that you're single. He loves you and he wants good for you in and through your singleness. So, so the message from Paul here is not to see your singleness for what it isn't, but for what it is. I, I, of course, marriage and kids would be good too. But, but friend, if you're single today, you should know that when God gives you that gift, if he does, he won't be giving you one good gift in place of, of an absence. He will be giving you one good gift in place of another good gift one that you won't have anymore, one that you won't be able to use in the way you could now. So for the moment, for right now, it's crucial to work hard to see the good in this gift and to, and to be really strategic for how you use it well. And that's for all of us, guys, because all of us either have been single, are single now, or will be single again as a widow or a widower. Singleness is a basic part of a human life. So all of us need to be ready to see it 
and use it for the gift that it is. We have much more to say on that coming next week. But for now, let's pray in advance of that, that the Lord will help us not just as individuals, but as a church, learn to celebrate this gift, not to stigmatize it, but to celebrate it and to leverage it for good in the work God is doing through our church. For now, I want to move to the gift of marriage because Paul has so much to say about, uh, about this gift in the next verses in chapter 7. Verse 10 is where Paul makes this shift. He shifts to the married couples in the church to teach us how to enjoy the gift of marriage. And the main gist of what he says here is pretty much the same thing as he says about singleness. Marriage is a gift for God. It's meant for your good, so stay married. Don't give up that gift. Stay married and use that gift. Don't believe that your life would be better or happier or more spiritually rich or fulfilling if you weren't married to the person that you're married to. Stay married. That's the main point. But, but, but to get it, this is a section where we got to get into the weeds a little bit. We got to flag some things that just might not be clear right away. Turn with me to look with me back to verse 10 where he begins to speak to married couples in the church. You'll notice that in verses 10 and 11, he speaks to married couples who were both believers in the context of the church. And then in verse 12 to 16, he's talking to, to, to members of the church who are married to unbelievers. In both sections, his point is basically the same. Stay married. But let, me, let me show you how he gets there. Look at verse 10. What he says to, to married Christians, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Meaning, Jesus spoke to this directly. Let me tell you what Jesus says. The wife should not separate from her husband. That just means shouldn't divorce. If she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. He's basically summing up what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. I won't take the time to read this section, but it's a wonderful section, so clear and helpful for us on what Jesus had to, had to say about marriage and divorce. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2, where marriage is first defined and given as a gift to humanity to enjoy. And, this, and, and Jesus' summary of that chapter is, look, if you're married, God put you together. What God has joined together, he says, don't let anybody separate. God is wise. God is sovereign. If you're married, God has given you the gift of this marriage. So, so stay married. Don't separate what God has joined. That's what Jesus teaches and that's what Paul's reaffirming here. So Christians who are married to Christians need to be on the same page about that and not be looking over their shoulder at what might be if they weren't married, but to work together from here in building their marriage. Then he gets to, first, to, to, to verse 12 and he, and he switches to another category. He switches to what he refers to as the rest. And here he says, it's I, not the Lord who speak to you. That's not because like, before he was, he was talking about something Jesus would say and now what he's saying doesn't really have any authority at all. It's just me, Paul, riffing here, shooting from the hip. That's not what he means. He, he means that Jesus actually didn't speak to a situation where a Christian is married to a non-Christian. Or at least not in any format that came down to Paul. It wasn't recorded. It wasn't handed down to him if Jesus had anything to say about that. Jesus was speaking before there were any Christians. So he didn't speak to this situation. So Paul's like, I, I will do that. I am Jesus' representative. I'm an apostle. I love you. I'll tell you what you should do in this situation. So I, not the Lord now, I'm going to tell you what happens in this situation. And he says, if a brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he shouldn't divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he shouldn't, she shouldn't divorce him. Basically, 
If you're married, and you can, stay that way. Even if you're married to an unbeliever. You can imagine why they might not have known what to do in this situation. I mean, coming out of a Jewish context especially, there was such clear teaching about what would happen if a, if a Jewish follower of, of God, of Yahweh, were to marry someone from another country who was an idol worshiper. That defiled the Jewish person in that marriage. It made them unclean before God. So you could see how the, the, the new Christians trying to figure out this new life in a, in a, in a world that, that's now been turned on, on its head for them. Is, is, that what, is that what's true here? If I'm married to someone who's not a Christian, does that make me unclean? And Paul's words, they're just wonderfully comforting for that situation. No, it actually works the other way. That in Christ, you're not defiled by your connection to an unbeliever. You may be the instrument God uses to make them holy. You see it in verse 14. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. I, I, look, I, I'm going to admit that's a complicated statement that he's made right there. I'm not 100% sure what he means by made holy in this context. I mean, in verse 16, he makes it real clear that he doesn't mean they'll be saved automatically. Like if you're a Christian, then you're, whatever, whether your spouse thinks Jesus is alive or not, doesn't matter. They're Christian now. They're saved now. Same thing for your kids. Uh, he, he says in verse 16, that's not the case. You don't know yet what, what might happen. Maybe they will be. You should stay married, so maybe they will be. But already, just by you staying married to them, just by you continuing as an influence in the lives of your children, there is a holiness that they get to experience because they know you and you're being made holy. Your sanctification will bless them. Your holiness has an infectious and a cleansing effect on a home. I think that's what he means. Your spouse, your kids... They'll have everyday access to the message of hope about Jesus. They won't get that anywhere else. It is good to have that message nearby. And they'll have everyday relationship with somebody who's growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Someone who's showing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all the rest. That is a good thing to be near to. So if you're married and your spouse is not a Christian... By all means, stay married. That's a gift. God has given it to you. You should enjoy it. And it gives you a precious opportunity to share Christ with the people that you love who need him desperately. Missionary dating is a terrible idea. You don't date someone who's not a Christian hoping that you can convert them. That has never worked. And Paul basically says you should never do that at the end of this chapter. We'll talk about that next week. But if you're already married, missionary marriage is a great idea. Stay married. It's God's gift. He joins you together and be a light to Christ in the marriage that you have already. That's his point. It's a gift worth preserving. But we need to give our last few minutes here to talking seriously about divorce we need to talk about it because the bible talks about it right here in chapter 7 
We need to talk about it because it is, it is such a living and painful reality for so many of you in one way or another. And let me just say right now, before I turn to what Paul says about divorce, if you've already been through a divorce, let me say first of all, and as clear as I can say it, I am so sorry. No matter what happened in your marriage, no matter what your role was in all of it, there is no such thing as a painless divorce. And I know you're still carrying the wounds of what you've been through. And I am so glad you're here. This is the place to be. This church is for you. And so is Jesus. Jesus came to heal wounds that are still open in your life. Jesus came to comfort you over a sorrow that you may live with from now till heaven. And Jesus gave you a church, our church, to support you and to remind you of what's true for as long as it takes. And I'm so glad you're here for it. We do want to stay, to look closely though at what Jesus has said to us about divorce. Because you know from what you've been through, you know from experience how true it is that divorce is terrible. It is tragic and it is in most cases disobedient to what God has told us about marriage. So we need to face up to that. Let's look carefully in these last couple of minutes at what Paul says here. Paul says that in almost every case, divorce is not acceptable, but points to a situation in which it is. In verse 15, Paul says that even though you want to do everything you can to avoid divorce, sometimes it's not avoidable. He says, if the unbelieving spouse decides they don't want to be married to a Christian, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Paul is carving out there one of two exceptions that the New Testament gives us to the rule that Jesus has given us about divorce. Jesus has said, no divorce. And Paul is saying, that's true. Unless your spouse abandons you, you can't control that. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 32, no divorce, except in the case of sexual immorality, in which case it is acceptable if you choose it. I believe, my, my reading of these texts is that remarriage after a divorce is permitted in the specific situations where divorce is permitted. I think that's what Paul means when he says in verse 15 that in such cases when an unbelieving partner separates, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That's what he means. At the end of the chapter, verse 40, or excuse me, verse 39, he uses very similar language about a, a wife being bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, she's bound until she's not. Then she's free to be remarried. That's what he means in, in verse 15 as well. I think that's what Jesus means in, in Matthew 5, 32, 
where he says that, that, that remarriage after divorce is adultery, except in the case of sexual immorality, he says. But what is even more clear in both 1 Corinthians 7 and in Matthew 5 is that the one who has divorced outside of these two exceptions should not remarry. It's what Paul says in verse 10, or in verse 11, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, where he says that remarriage after divorce, except in cases of infidelity, is adultery. This is a hard teaching. As individuals and as a church, we want to be clear about what God has said. We want to trust God with our obedience together. And we want to do that especially where what he said comes at a high cost and stands out dramatically from the culture around us. This teaching was radical in Paul's day too. And when Paul said, stay unmarried, he knew what he was asking because he was unmarried. And don't forget that when he says, long-term chosen singleness is a good way to live, he is applying the message of verse 24. In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The life you're in now is a life where God is available to you. If God is available to you, you will do without nothing that you can't live without. That's his message. And we'll pick it up together again next week. For now, I want to pray that the Lord will help us to hear and to love what he said. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help in embracing your word. Help us to understand it clearly, to share it with one another with charity and grace, and to embrace it as good news for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.